Well, this evening, for our scripture lesson, I turn now to Exodus chapter 20 to begin a quick survey for evening services here of the Ten Commandments. And tonight we'll deal briefly with the introduction to the Ten Commandments and then uh, the First Commandment. So I read now God's holy word as Moses faithfully and infallibly recorded, which was spoken by God himself directly to all of the people of Israel when they gathered at Mount Sinai. So this is the word of the living God, inspired by him, therefore, without error, Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. And thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let us briefly pray here. Lord, we do pray that you would grant that we might understand and obey your word. And grant that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts this evening would be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name. Well, sometime in the future, I think that as we have made our way through Genesis uh, not long ago, we might uh, pick up, pick back up with covenant history there, and uh, and we'll uh, start with Exodus and maybe make our way through that. I have some plans for some other things to preach once we finish 1 Corinthians, maybe uh, preach something else in the Old Testament more briefly, then go to 2 Corinthians, and then maybe come to Exodus. Haven't entirely uh, settled that as yet. But sometime in the future, I do think we'll come back to this. We'll get to chapter 20 of Exodus and maybe do a a deeper examination of each of these commandments and, and see how they're fleshed out in the rest of Scripture. Uh, but uh, now, uh, for now, I want to just uh, do basically one commandment per week for tonight and the following nine evening services. Uh, there was a time when most any Christian could have recited the Ten Commandments, and in addition to that, given a pretty detailed explanation of what they mean. Uh, furthermore, most of those Christians could even explain the purposes behind Uh, those commandments and uh, see ways in which they connect to other scriptures. But uh, so many today not only don't know the commandments, uh, they have fallen into the trap of the Pharisees, uh, thinking that we perhaps make our way to heaven and earn God's favor by keeping these Ten Commandments. Now certainly, as we will see as we go through the series, Obeying them is an appropriate response to the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. And there are ways that we can show that we honor and love God, and he does reward faithful service to him. But we by no means earn our way into heaven by keeping them. If you think that, I don't think anybody here thinks that, but if you think that, or maybe somebody listening online in the future sometime thinks that, pay close attention uh, to this evening and Uh, for the following nine evening services, because over that time, uh, Lord willing, we'll examine each commandment 
of the ten and see what it really means, uh, how we commonly violate it, uh, and how it relates to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as we begin, the first thing to say about the Ten Commandments, also known as the Decalogue, which just literally means the ten words, the ten statements. Uh, as we begin, the first thing to say about that is that they are not only, uh, they're not the only commandments that God has given. And some people will point that out as if somehow uh, the, the Ten Commandments aren't all that relevant because, well, aren't there lots of other commandments in Scripture? But what sets these ten apart is they are a summary of the Lord's moral law. And you'll notice, as we read this evening, that at the beginning of chapter 20 in Exodus, we're told that God spoke these words. The entire nation of Israel heard God speak these words to them. And if we were to read on in Exodus 20 and thereafter, we'd find that the people were so frightened by hearing the voice of God speak his commandments to them, that they asked Moses, you go and talk to God for us. For Old Testament Israel, God gave civil laws, those that were to govern them as a nation, as a state in the world. And he also gave ceremonial laws to govern their religion and to keep it pointing to to Christ to come. Under the New Covenant, we also have ceremonial laws as well, pertaining especially to baptism and the Lord's Supper, the elements of worship, but they're neither as numerous nor as stringent as what Old Covenant Israel had to follow. Uh, We have a lot more freedom than the uh, Old Testament people of God because uh, Christ has been revealed to us fully, and uh, of course, uh, back then, if they were to mess with the types and shadows, the Old Covenant ceremonial laws were types and shadows of Christ, And so they had to have a lot of regulations, first of all, to point to Christ accurately, and a lot of regulations that would keep them from messing with that so that the image of Christ ahead of time would not get muddled. But now we have the full revelation of God in Christ. We have the substance of the types and shadows, and so uh, we don't need those types and shadows. And so there's a great deal more freedom in terms of Christian worship and a great deal more simplicity But God also revealed to Israelites his moral law. And we see lots of moral laws that are fleshed out as we go on in Exodus and the other uh, books of Moses in particular. Uh, But all of them are an expansion or an application of these ten commandments in some way. The moral law, therefore, is summarized in the ten commandments and then uh, boiled down even more in the statements, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself. But this moral law that is summarized in the Ten Commandments reveals what God determines is right or wrong. These are eternal and universal because God's character does not change. What he says is right and wrong do not change because God has an unchanging character. And that's good for us to know that, that God is unchanging in his character because we don't have to worry that he's going to simply change his mind tomorrow and all of a sudden the means of salvation in Christ is gone or uh, what we thought was right is now wrong or vice versa. The Lord's moral law, because God's character doesn't change, applies in all times and places. So ceremonial laws can change depending on the covenant era that you're in. Uh, The civil laws of 
of Israel are consistent with God's moral law, but there are particular applications of it for a particular time and place. And so uh, we may not have uh, the same exact laws, but our laws should reflect the same moral law that those laws reflected. But the moral law applies in all times and places because God does not change. They're universal. And its purpose is the same today as it was in the time of Moses when it was first written. And it's the same, in fact, as it was before God even created the world because it's God's character being reflected here. And the moral law is summarized, again, in these Ten Commandments. The first place that those Ten Commandments appear is in Exodus chapter 20, when Israel had gathered at Mount Sinai, and God spoke them directly to all of the nation of Israel. Where he says in verse 2, verse 1 of course tells us God spoke all these words, saying in verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Uh, This is often called the preface of the Ten Commandments. And if we come back around to this, uh, in sometime in a, in a series through Exodus, perhaps I'll, uh, I'll probably just preach only on that preface. But tonight, uh, let me just note that it tells us that by virtue of being the Lord, Yahweh, I am, as he called himself, as he told Moses he was, that, in other words, the self-existent God, God has the sovereign right to command us. He is eternal. He's outside of time. He has no beginning or end. He is immutable. He's unchanging in his being and character. He is almighty. The one who caused all things to exist by the word of his power. He is perfectly moral and all wise. He chose out of a fallen world a particular people making him especially the God of the nation of Israel, whom he purchased out of bondage in Egypt. And this is a picture of salvation. God is the God of his people in Christ Jesus, whom he chose and purchased out of slavery to sin. He is, in other words, a covenant God. And he has the right, therefore, to state the terms of that covenant. And he establishes his covenant with Israel by revealing this moral law. But notice that he's already chosen them. He has already rescued them when he speaks this law to them. He doesn't uh, speak the law to them when they're in captivity in Egypt and say, I am, or I could be the Lord your God. My name is Yahweh. And if you can keep these Ten Commandments, I will adopt you as my people and rescue you out of slavery in Egypt. No, this is how he expects them to respond after he saved them from a situation out of which they could by no means save themselves. And the same is true for you and I. We cannot save ourselves out of the situation under slavery to sin that we're in. But God chooses a people for himself, and this is how we respond to that salvation. It's not how we save ourselves. The first of these commandments is quite straightforward. It's verse 3 of our reading tonight. You shall have no other gods before me. In that straightforward statement are contained several principles. Number one, there's only one God who should be worshipped. One true God 
We must acknowledge him as such. Uh, Yes, in the Old Testament Hebrew, there are other beings that are called Elohim. Other, you could say that gods with a little g. Sometimes it's translated that way as we read the book of Psalms, for example, or sing the Psalter. You sons of the gods, give the Lord as his right. So uh, these are terms that refer to heavenly beings, spiritual beings, what we commonly call angels, but angels, but the, the, the creatures known as seraphim, cherubim, those sorts of creatures, the, the malachim, the, the, the angels, the messengers of God. But they are not to be worshipped. We worship the one true God alone. No, no other being, whatever label we can place on them, in Hebrew or any other language, is a self-existent being. Only Yahweh, only the Lord God, is eternal and self-existent. And so he is the only true God with a capital G, if you will. Number two, we have to worship and glorify him and him alone. That's what those words, you shall have no other gods before me, say. It's not just to say, you can have other gods, just don't place them before me. It's to say, you shall have no other gods in my presence. And where is God, the Lord, not present? Nowhere. Number three, we see we're forbidden then from having any other God or anything else that takes the place of God in our lives. So it, yes, could be polytheism where we embrace many gods or we have some other God instead of God, but it could also be atheism which replaces God with ourselves. It could be New Ageism which basically does the same thing by saying you are God or you have a spark of God within you. Similarly, pantheism which says everything is God. It identifies God with his creation in the sense that he is the universe as opposed to the universe being something made by him. Well, the Westminster Larger Catechism states quite well uh, what the scriptures teach in terms of applying this commandment. I won't won't take the time tonight to, to show you the scriptural proofs for these things, Maybe in the future we can do that and flesh these out a little more. But just note that here's what the Westminster Larger Catechism says in terms of uh, fleshing out what the rest of the scriptures tell us in terms of application of the third commandment. You shall have no other gods before me, the Lord says. Catechism says the sins forbidden in this commandment are atheism in denying or not having a god. Because as we've noted... What does that do? Well, that, that means that, number one, we're not worshiping the Lord, who is to be worshipped, and number two, we're putting ourselves in his place. If I say there is no God, then what rule of life do I have to follow but my own rule? The Catechism goes on and says, Idolatry in having or worshiping more gods than one, or any with or instead of the true God. So whether you worship lots of other gods, or in the place of this God, or any one other God in the place of this God, or you try to worship them alongside of him. This was much of the problem of what we see in Old Testament Israel, where it wasn't that that everybody who worshipped the Baals was, was giving up the worship of the Lord altogether, but they were trying to place another God alongside of Yahweh, worshiping the Queen of Heaven and other 
things alongside of God. The Catechism says, the not having and vouching him for God and our God, so just refusing him as your own God, the omission or neglect of anything due to him required in this commandment. So just neglecting to worship God or to serve him. Ignorance, forgetfulness, misapprehensions. So uh, willfully not wanting to learn about God or forgetting the things that we have learned about God. Uh, Not willing to change the things that we think about God when the scriptures tell us otherwise. False opinions. Think of how many people say things like, uh, well, my God would never do X, Y, or Z. And that the X, Y, and Z are the things that the Bible says God does. Like something that's often, that you'll often encounter, or that I have often encountered in the world, is uh, the kind of statement that says, well, my God would never kill his own son. Well, then your God isn't the true God, because our, the true God actually sent his son to die for the sins of his people. My God would never send anyone to hell. Well, as I heard one theologian say, well, your God can't because that God doesn't exist. False opinions. The Catechism says, unworthy and wicked thoughts of him. Think of the way that people speak blasphemously of God and making jokes about him. I just uh, was in grocery store a few days ago, and I think as many of the stores around town do here, they had our local radio station on, and and there was a, a country song playing. I'm not a fan of country music, so I was not familiar with this song whatsoever, uh, but in this song, a woman was singing about how when she listens to the, her favorite songs on the radio, it's like the Holy Ghost moving through you. And that's my church, she said. That's blasphemy. That is blasphemy. Unworthy and wicked thoughts of God. Bold and curious searchings into his secret, into his secrets, I should say. I think what the Westminster divines were thinking there is is the occult. People trying to find out the spiritual secrets of the universe through uh, means other than what God has given us to find them through his word. Bold and curious searchings into his secrets. All profaneness. Uh, So uh, treating holy things as if they're common. Hatred of God. Self-love. Self-seeking. So anything that places ourselves ahead of God. And all other inordinate and immoderate setting of our mind, will, or affections upon other things and taking them off of him in whole or in part. Vain credulity. It's basically just believing things because it's convenient for you to believe them. Right? There, that probably goes hand in hand with the sort of statement that says, my God would never send anyone to hell. Uh, it would be nice from a man's, from, from human perspective, uh, to, if there was no, no punishment for sin, if there were no consequences for the things that we did. And so, some people just choose to believe otherwise, other than what God has said. That's vain credulity. Unbelief. 
heresy. So failing to believe God for who he is and for what he says. Heresy, teaching things that are contrary to what he says. Misbelief, believing things that don't work alongside of what God says. Distrust, so failing to trust God. Despair. That's really, that really comes from not resting in God. Incorrigibleness, failure to be corrected by God's word. Insensibleness under judgments. So again, that's what... Be it God chastising his people, or maybe church discipline comes upon someone, and they just refuse over and over again to note that they are sinning. Hardness of heart, pride, presumption, carnal security, so being secure in yourself and in your own abilities to do things. Tempting of God. You know, go and play in traffic and think, well, if God doesn't want me to die, I'll be fine. Tempting the Lord. Using unlawful means. So using things that God has not has forbidden uh, to bring about something that we think is good. So the ends are not justified by the means. And trusting in lawful means. So God gives us things that are good. Uh, lawful means of worshiping him, for example, and of growing in the spirit. For growing in grace. Bible study. Prayer, coming to public worship. But we're not saved because we go to church. We're not saved because we read the Bible. right? And so if we trust in those as if they save us, then we're actually committing idolatry. Carnal delights and joys. So uh, placing uh, our earthly pleasures ahead of God. Corrupt, blind, and indiscreet zeal. So where we, we are wanting to do the right thing and we're zealous for the right thing but we're unwilling to recognize that what we think is right is not what God says is right. So we have indiscreet, corrupt, or blind zeal. Lukewarmness. So just being kind of so-so about the things of God. Deadness in the things of God. Estranging ourselves and apostatizing from God. So turning away from the Lord. Praying or giving any religious worship to saints, angels, or any other creatures. You shall have no other gods before me. You do not worship anything but Yahweh, the living God. All compacts and consulting with the devil. So here comes another element of the occult. And hearkening to his suggestions. Making men the lords of our faith and conscience. That would go well with an idolatrous church where we practice what's known as implicit faith. Well, the Pope says so, therefore it's true. Well, no. Does God say so? That's the question. Making men the lords of our faith and conscience, slighting and despising God. So anything that shows despising of God in his commands. Sliding and despising God in his commands. Resisting and grieving of his spirit. So if we, at any time that we resist the Holy Spirit's prompting us to obey the commands of God, we grieve his spirit, we're told, when we choose to do the things. Remember, the Holy Spirit dwells in you as God's chosen person. 
If you were in Christ, you were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so when you or I choose to sin, what we're doing is we're saying, I'm putting myself ahead of God, and here the Holy Spirit is there with you while you're doing that. Well, you're actually then committing a form of idolatry. Grieving the Spirit while you do so. Discontent and impatience at his dispensations. So in other words, uh, thinking, well, why hasn't God done X, Y, or Z for me yet? And getting impatient with it. Particularly if we think about what theologians usually uh, in the era that the Westminster Confession and the larger catechism were written, I think about what the word dispensation meant. They're thinking especially about covenant eras. And so maybe thinking impatience with why doesn't the world just get better now? Why doesn't Jesus just come back now? He could fix all these problems that we see. And of course that's true. But Christ will return in his good time. And we need to be patient. We need to be eager for it on the one hand, but patiently waiting for it on the other hand. Impatient at his dis- impatience at his dispensations. We could also think of how the word was used. It's just to say uh, discontent with the things that God has given us in life as we have now. Charging him foolishly for the evils he inflicts on us. God doesn't know what he's doing. Right? That's a, that kind of statement or where people have said, God made a mistake when he did such and such. That's blasphemy and violation of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. As if we have the right to judge God for his actions. Ascribing the praise of any good we either are, have, or can do to fortune idols ourselves or any other creature. So giving honor to someone or something else that belongs properly to God alone, that is idolatry. Well, we can violate this commandment in many ways. We've already, I've already mentioned some. When we blatantly worship other gods, of course. But though we may not be conscious polytheists worshiping many gods at once, we can violate this commandment in really two basic ways. One, when we, as the catechist pointed out, pray to or put our trust in someone or something outside of God. Prayer to saints, hoping our loved ones who have passed on are watching over us, you know, angel worship, uh, trusting in or crediting luck with what has happened to us, as if God wasn't sovereign and in control of everything. We said, boy, I was really lucky when that happened. No, God really blessed me when that happened. And since God has revealed himself uh, fully in Christ Jesus, anything that denies Christ's deity or his sufficiency as our Savior... In 1 Timothy 2.5, Paul says, There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, whom Paul has clearly established uh, is God, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Works righteousness, which teaches I I have to earn my own salvation. The the need for uh, priests or bishops or popes as mediators, saints as mediators, all contradict the fact that Christ alone is the Savior, that there's one mediator between God and man, and it is by his merits that we're reconciled to God. That would be a violation of the first commandment. More commonly, though, number two, we violate the first commandment when we, in essence, make ourselves God. When we put ourselves in the place of God. 
when we usurp the authority of God in our lives by placing our desires ahead of the Lord's revealed will. Now, who of us has ever kept the first commandment perfectly? Can you say that you've never failed to glorify God to the fullest? Can you honestly claim never to have doubted Him? Never to have trusted in luck or chance? Have you never put your own desires ahead of His? I know I've done all of these things at times. If we go to heaven by keeping the Ten Commandments, then I think if all of us are honestly examining ourselves right now, we have to admit, here's the first commandment, and none of us are going to heaven because we already violated number one. We cannot save ourselves by keeping the commandments because every one of us has violated them. Again, we're only on the first commandment, and we all would have to admit we've broken this one. In fact, ironically, if you think you'll go to heaven by your own merits, you're automatically disqualifying yourself from going to heaven because you are breaking this commandment. But Christ Jesus, God in the flesh, has stood in your place. He kept these commandments perfectly. You can't go to heaven by your works, but you do go to heaven by works, by Christ's accomplished work. He obeyed these commandments perfectly, and he bore the punishment for breaking them in your place. What a great gift from God that is. Through faith in him, you and I have access to the holy God. And our response then should be to endeavor to keep this commandment and all of God's moral law, not in a futile attempt to save yourself or myself, but to show the God who has saved us that we love him and that we're thankful. Jesus summarized the first four commandments with this statement, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. We show Jesus that we love our Lord by keeping his commandments. Let's pray. Eternal Father, we thank you that though we were hostile in mind to you, enemies and sinners, you sent your Son to be righteousness for us and to die in our place that we might not be eternally separated from you. So we ask that by the Holy Spirit you would teach us daily to love you and to glorify you by keeping this moral law. In Jesus' name, amen.